You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. I'm your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Uh, Today is Wednesday, October 17th, 2018, and it is the first day for legalized recreational cannabis in the country of Canada. I think we're the second country to do it. I think Uruguay was the first. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, anyway, um, cannabis is a, is a question that we, we've we had a few times. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a ton of research yet on the effects of cannabis uh, and post-concussion syndrome, but there is some early research on pain. Uh, there's also some indication that it may reduce inflammatory markers within the brain. So um, our kind of stance on cannabis right now is our stance on anything is that we're paying attention to the scientific literature on this topic and we will update you as new evidence uh, becomes available. Uh, second order of business is the Brain Injury Canada Conference is happening this uh, Thursday and Friday in Ottawa. So for those of you in the Ottawa area, unfortunately, day one is already sold out, and that is navigating the trends of brain injury. Uh, it's going to be a jam-packed day full of uh, some really excellent talks. Uh, so for those of you that did get tickets, awesome. You're going to have a great time. The Friday is uh, evidence-based treatment for persistent concussion symptoms. Last I spoke to uh, the president of Brain Injury Canada, there was a couple of tickets left for that day. So uh, if you want to go to braininjurycanada.ca to try and see if you can snap up the last remaining tickets for the Friday, they may be sold out by now. Uh, But some excellent speakers and actually some board members for Complete Concussion Management are uh, in the speaker lineup. So I'm pretty excited to see them speak. Uh, We have Dr. Shirley Blanc, who is the optometrist who's on our medical advisory board. She's a vision therapist um, and has done numerous uh, talks on post-concussion vision therapy and also teaches the portion of post-concussion vision therapy in the CCMI uh, online practitioner education course. We also have Dr. Paul Herkel, who will be joining me next Wednesday here on this show to talk about all the nutrition-based questions that you guys have had over the past, uh, I don't know, we've been doing this for what, Reek, eight, six, eight months or so. Um, and so uh, he'll be on next week to talk about all the supplements, all the nutritional stuff, all about uh, gut-brain access, uh, inflammation, and how these dietary interventions can help to reduce the symptoms of concussion. It's an extremely important topic and one that I'm getting more and more interested in every day. He will be speaking tomorrow, um, and his topic is evidence-based nutritional and functional medicine strategies for TBI and PCS being post-concussion syndrome. So uh, if you are in the Ottawa area and you're not doing anything on Friday, go to braininjurycanada.ca to try and see if you can snap up some tickets for that event. Cool. Okay, so a few questions today. Um, the first one is more of a, um, I guess, just a, a correction or an educational piece for the topic that we did. We had a post, a uh, it was Trivia Tuesday, I believe, and um, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we had Trivia Tuesday, and it was it was asking if concussion causes bruising of the brain, and that was a true or false uh, question, and a lot of people got it wrong. And they put that concussion does cause bruising of the brain. And uh, I just wanted to make the distinction between the two events. So concussion 
by definition is a functional injury with no uh, findings on imaging. So there's no structural damage with a concussion that's visible on any type of imaging. There's no bleeding or hemorrhage in the brain that would be visible on imaging. There's no other, you know, skull fractures or anything like that. So that is concussion is basically a, a functional injury. It changes how the brain functions, doesn't change anything with structure, and the findings are not visible on any type of conventional imaging technology like MRI or CT scans. A bruise on the brain is called a cerebral contusion. Now this is present in more severe forms of brain injury. If you categorize brain injury, concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. You see bruising in 20 to 30 percent of patients that have more severe forms of brain injury. So this is stuff that's found on, on imaging. If you were to do a CT scan, you would see uh, micro hemorrhages and bruising uh, on the tissue of the brain, which indicates that the injury is actually more severe than a concussion injury. So that's why that, that answer would have been incorrect. So the, the correct answer is that concussion does not cause um, bruising on the brain because if there is bruising, it means that the injury is actually more severe uh, than a concussion. Next question. After watching your discussion about the placebo effect of hyperbaric oxygen chambers, do you find similar results with isolation float therapy? I've had incredible results over the past six months in relieving discomfort caused by PCS, post-concussion syndrome. However, it is only because of the enhanced level. Is this only because of the enhanced level of meditation or are you able to achieve um, that you're able to achieve with a certain physical barrier slash stressors removed. So uh, these float tanks are becoming popular now uh, just to de-stress and have kind of uh, isolation from, from any type of stimulation. And hyperbaric oxygen, the theory behind it is that you have pressurized oxygen that's pure oxygen delivered and that can help to increase and improve the repair of tissue. And it's, there's been some research in musculoskeletal injuries, there's been some research in more severe forms of brain injury, and when you look at concussion, unfortunately in persistent concussion symptoms, hyperbaric oxygen performs no better than sham, meaning with no oxygen, no um, when you don't have pressurized pure oxygen delivery, if you just have room air delivered to you, uh, it's actually just just as effective as having pressurized oxygen. So they found that hyperbaric oxygen across numerous studies has been found to be no better than placebo for concussion. And this was actually found by the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation guidelines for persistent symptoms. They ruled it as not recommended for persistent concussion symptoms as a form of treatment. So it's not even that we don't have enough evidence, is that we have quite a bit of evidence and it all points towards being, you know, no better than placebo. Float therapy is a different type of mechanism than what hyperbaric oxygen therapy would be. Float therapy allows you to basically shut off any outside stimulation and allows you to kind of, you know, get into a bit of a meditative state. Meditation has been shown to be effective for the relief of post-concussion symptoms. And this has to do with a lot of the psychological components of persistent concussion symptoms. So things like anxiety, um, increased stimulation, all of this stuff that causes or can increase persistent concussion symptoms could potentially be helped through something like float therapy. Now, again, no research on float therapy in particular, but I have had 
a number of patients that have told me that after they go to float therapy, they feel so much better for a few days. Now, is this because they've been floating in a hypertonic solution of, of you know, a very high density salt water? Or is it because they had a chance to completely shut their mind off and get into a meditative state, you know, for a good half hour to, to an hour? And I think it's probably more on the meditation side. So you can do meditation without having the float, uh, and it might be just as effective. Uh, there's not any research that I've come across on float therapy specifically. So unfortunately, we don't really know. That's the answer to that question. Um, here's another question that I got and actually this came up on Instagram and it was more of a discussion that I was having with someone and it was regarding a post that I did, when was this, uh, six days ago and it was talking about how MRI scans and CT scans should not be used for the diagnosis of concussion and blood tests shouldn't be either. Now this was a repost from Complete Concussions Instagram um, and the reason why they shouldn't be used as diagnostic tools for a concussion is, like I said earlier in the show, they don't detect concussion because concussion is a an injury to how the brain functions. When these modalities look at structural, um, you know, issues in the brain, they don't find anything, and so it's a waste of our time to do this imaging a lot of times unless we're concerned that there's a more severe injury. For example, if the person is displaying some of the red flag signs and symptoms then you'd want to get a CT scan to make sure there isn't a bleed or there isn't a skull fracture or there isn't increasing um, pressure within the brain. So that there sparked a conversation that happened um, and we kind of went back and forth on it a little bit and I said I would talk about it on this show but the, the idea is this person presented some potential diagnostic tools um, that they utilize such as video nystagmography which looks at the pupils during vestibular testing to look for uh, vestibular problems and things like that. This person suggested that they could be used as diagnostic tools. The problem is that concussion is very nonspecific and people can have vestibular problems or people can have balance impairments and it doesn't necessarily uh, confirm that a concussion has taken place. So you can have these findings irrespective of having a concussion, which means that it's not, it's still not a good diagnostic tool. There is no diagnostic tool right now that we have that can confirm that a concussion has taken place. Unless we know your pre-injury status, so if you were going to do baseline video nystagmography on a bunch of people, VNG testing on a bunch of people and have that information stored somewhere so that you knew what they look like before their injury and then test them after injury, you could compare those results to help you with your diagnostic picture, but you can't, we don't know enough yet about normative issues and we don't know yet enough about individuals to then just take a post-injury test and look at that and say, you've had a concussion because we don't know where they started from. So then we got into the next question that came out of this particular conversation was, well, how do you know, and I said concussion takes a lot of force to happen. Okay, the question then becomes, how do you know that concussion takes a lot of force to happen if you can never confirm the concussion has actually taken place? And that's a very, very excellent question and that's what I really wanted to address today is how do I know that concussion takes a certain amount of G-forces 
if I can never confirm that the concussion has actually taken place? Excellent question. And the only way that we're able to understand this is by using big, 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 big data sets. And it all comes from biomechanical research. So there is um, a technology called HIT, that's Head Impact Telemetry, H-I-T, HIT technology. And what it is is a series of six accelerometers that go inside of uh, helmets of athletes. And they put these sensors in place and they would follow athletes for years and years and years and they would look at HIT's, um, let's say, impacts sustained in practice, impacts sustained in games, etc. And over years of multiple teams and following this, they develop a data set that I think had over a million and a half hits. So, and when I say hits, I mean player contact. And this is any contact which resulted in more than 10 Gs being delivered to the player's helmet and hypothetically then their head. A million and a half impacts over, I think, three or four years that they got this. And what they were doing is if any player would come off at any time and be complaining of symptoms of a concussion, for example, they got hit, they come off, I'm feeling dizzy, I feel nauseous, displaying the symptoms of concussion, they would then go back and look at the data from the accelerometers to determine how much force was in that hit. And then what you start to realize is what is the average amount of force of head contact and then how much force is it taking to cause these symptoms of concussion, which that's what a concussion is, is it's a clinical diagnosis based on the fact that there was a mechanism of injury, meaning some sort of impact, which was then quickly um, followed by the onset of concussion-like symptoms. And there's those 22 symptoms that are commonly reported and discussed. So all of this information, how do I know that concussions happen at 70 to 120 Gs with the most kind of the highest likelihood of concussion occurring is at 96.1 Gs? How do I know that? It's because over millions of impacts, people that got hit at that G-force range displayed symptoms of concussion immediately afterwards. And now you can start to narrow that down. The average amount of force that's taken in football, the average football um, hit is less than 20 Gs. The majority of hits, more than 70% of the, the hits that you see in college and high school football are below 30 Gs. So you're looking at this elevated thing for concussion. And so the comment was made that any hit to the head causes a brain injury and that's just not true right that's like saying any hit to your arm even if it's this light is causing damage to your muscle if you get a good hit you can get bruising in there yes but just by hitting like this does that mean i'm going to eventually like my arm's going to break no probably not i'm hitting myself very very lightly so there's the same kind of spectrum that we feel anyway is with brain injury and so as you get further and further down the spectrum so in this G range let's say when you get from zero I'm gonna go the opposite way now cuz I'm on camera I've been going this way and so it's backwards for you guys but I'm gonna go the opposite way let's say it's from zero up to 50 G's of impact you know there's no injury there's no damage there's no long-term injury this is just a theory okay so before people start attacking me this is just a theory zero to 50 G's Let's say there's no damage whatsoever. Let's say 50 to 70 Gs 
maybe you get into this subconcussive impact range where maybe there's some damage happening at that range, uh, but it doesn't create any symptoms of concussion, meaning that it doesn't actually cause concussion injury, but there may be some microstructural damage happening underneath. Then you get into the 70 to 120 G range. Now you're getting into concussion territory where you're going to have symptoms of concussion. Then you get over that 120. Now you're into the 120 to 200 to 300 G range. This is when you get your moderate and your severe brain injuries where people are in comas, people may not survive. That's when you get into the more catastrophic forms of brain injury. And so there's this continuum of G-forces. So not every impact causes concussion. How do I know that? From the biomechanical data that was done um, over years and years and years and actually looked at the symptoms of concussion being correlated with, with a range of impact force required. So you can see now why I didn't want to type all that out because <laughs> that's a lot to explain. Um, but this is how we know. So not every impact is causing a concussion injury. Uh, in fact, most impacts in any sport are going to be well below the threshold required for concussion, um, at least as far as we know now. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. Uh, dun, dun, dun. And then the next one is the force needed to cause a concussion. I think I've answered that. Um, you know, decently well in in that. So uh, that's it for today's show. Did anything else come in while I was ranting there? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, all right, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week. Next week, reminder: this is Dr. Herkel's episode. He's going to be in. Uh, I don't know if we're going to do it right here or wherever we're going to do it, but um, it's going to be around the same time. Actually, we're going to go a little bit earlier, 11:30 a.m. Eastern Time, Eastern Standard Time, and we're going to go for probably about an hour till 12.30 or so when Dr. Herc has to leave to go to patients. And we're going to go through all the questions that have been asked. If anyone has any additional questions they would like to ask Dr. Herkel in terms of nutritional elements, things like that, uh, supplements. I know there's a couple supplements out there. Um, you can ask him about, you know, what types of supplements that you would, that he'd recommend. Send those questions in. Uh, this guy's a wealth of knowledge. Um, and uh, you guys will really enjoy this episode. Cheers, guys. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.